Uh, Malcolm Holmline is with us. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's great to be with you as always. I appreciate that. Uh, incident this morning at Shar Shechem. I mention it uh, not only because I have kids in Israel now, but so I'm more focused on it. But um, it had been relatively quiet, I think we could say, over the last few weeks. But uh, I guess we still have to uh, understand that Israel is not going to prevent every one of these crazy people who is incited by the enemy uh, from going ahead and trying to harm people. So that's an important reminder. Also, today is the yard site of uh, Dr. David and his daughter, Nava Applebaum. And anybody who remembers that from 13 years ago will remember when Israel was really at the height of being a target of terror. And we have to thank God when things are, in fact, relatively quiet. So just a thought as we open up our conversation here at JM in the AM. Uh, Malcolm, what do you know, our listeners want to know, about the condition of former Prime Minister and President Shimon Peres? Well, there's, uh, I mean, it's obviously a very delicate time, given his age and given the severity of what he suffered. But as he has in the past, he has the remarkable ability to come back and to astound the doctors, shaking hands with some, acknowledging some. He wasn't in induced coma. Uh, the bleeding from the brain, it seems, stopped, but he's still in a precarious state. And we've pointed this out many times, and obviously, uh, you know, everything in the right time, but we've pointed this out many times, that whether you agree with him, and not you, I mean in general, people agree with him politically or not, or what he has done with his career or not, he is so emblematic of the history of the state of Israel, with all the different stages he went through from youth all the way until the hierarchy of the uh, of the state. Uh, that's that's uh, very right, and and I know there are people who don't like his views and don't like his uh, some of the positions that he's taken but we should all remember take a look at this guy's history and who who can uh, compare to the things that he's done working as the secretary to Ben Gurion starting Demona the Israel's nuclear program helping build up Israel's defense forces and devoting his life to to the Jewish state and he is the last of that generation I think yeah. uh, and deserves the respect uh, that is being accorded to him. Yeah, no question about it. All right, um, the United States and Israel brought months of sensitive and difficult negotiations to a close on Wednesday with the signing of a 10-year, $38 billion defense deal hailed by both sides, the biggest of its kind in American history. Now, there are supposedly some conditions attached to this. You have been speaking to us leading up to this um, uh, agreement what could you tell us about finally getting this thing signed? Well, there was a long debate about whether they would sign it now or sign it within the, wait till the next administration to see if they could get a better deal. It is reported that Netanyahu started wanted forty-five billion. It's four point five billion a year. Uh, they, in fact, got only a slight increase. It's a very important statement. There's no country that has a comparable deal. It's thirty-eight billion dollars, nonetheless, over ten years. Right. Uh, but incorporated into that is $500 million uh, that goes for Iron Dome and David Sling, et cetera, which was usually allocated by Congress in addition to right. the money in the last 10-year MOU, so that, which was uh, $3 billion a year, or $3.1 billion a year, and then you added the $500 million, so it brought it to 3.6. So the increase is $200 million a year, 
certainly significant, but when you take into account the increased costs of of um, the items that Israel is buying, uh, it's been assessed that it's actually a decrease uh, from the past deal. Uh, the, the arguments have been made that is, they should have negotiated it during the Iran negotiations the, or, or earlier. Uh, you know, everybody can speculate now. No one can tell what the circumstances will be a year from now when the next administration is in place, what the economic pressures, the cutbacks in the overall defense budget. It's an important statement to the region of the U.S.-Israel relationship, of the solid nature of it and continuing commitment uh, to Israel. This way it doesn't have to be negotiated every year. It is, uh, removes uh, what was sometimes a source of tension with administrations and having Congress to debate. There are those who are putting forward an argument that uh, this is uh, undermines the uh, APAC or the lobbying efforts because it takes Congress out of the picture, yeah. as Lindsey Graham and others said, uh, and Congress should be in the allocations process. Well, for one, it's an executive order, so it may not be binding on the next president that they could make changes. There are understandings in this agreement that Israel would not go to Congress for additional amounts except in, in special circumstances with the agreement of the administration in power. So, it, you know, there are chances for flexibility in the future if uh, there should be a need, uh, but there are critics. Uh, Barack, uh, former Prime Minister Barack, came out very critical of it. Um, Boogie Alon, the former Minister of Defense, came out uh, critical of it, saying that he could have gotten more, or he was promised more in their discussions with the defense officials here so uh, I think we should not diminish what, what was achieved, but be realistic about it. Okay, so can, can one then, and especially if you say this speculation, can one then assume that there was a, a certain, that there was some conjecturing about what the next administration might be like? If they went ahead, and again, I mean, it sounds to me like a BB gamble here that you're describing in terms of getting this signed now, but could there just be a wariness of who who among the two candidates could be in the White House next, and maybe those of us who think that they'd be friendlier, nicer, or more accommodating to Israel than the current president, maybe that wouldn't be the case. It's the uncertainty about it. It's not because they are basing on any kind of prediction of either who will win or or that there would be a difference with who wins, because they uh, it, it could well be that it would be in a better circumstance. But the military needs years of advanced planning. If they didn't reach a deal till the next administration is in a position to negotiate, it, it, it will be a long time. This deal only begins in 2018. Right. But for the military, when you want to order, let's say, F-35 stealth bombers, you have to order them now in order to get them in four years from now. Mm-hmm. And therefore, having the assurance that this money will be available, knowing that they will have this, set, this, this amount to work with, uh, they can now start to make purchase and and uh, work out the the plans that have to be done uh, now. There is another aspect which I know most people dismiss, but it's really pretty significant. It's in a, it has to do with the offshore procurements, where Israel until now was allowed to spend 26 percent of the money on its own domestic industry buying equipment, technology, etc. That will be phased out. Uh, especially from year 5 to year 10, so by year 10 it will be zero, that Israel will have to spend all of the money here in the United States. 
uh, even without it, they were creating tens of thousands of jobs with their purchases. Mm-hmm. Now that will increase. Uh, I'm sure that there were uh, there was lobbying by the domestic American arms industry. Who don't like the competition from Israel, uh, but it's also an easier sell with Congress with us to see uh, that the money spent here. But at least it gives it them the years instead of an immediate cutoff as had been initially demanded. It, it gives them time to adjust to this new arrangement. And you've been, um, for good reason, you've been emphasizing how important the congressional races are, uh, e- even if they, even if Congress is slightly out of this process now that you just described. Uh, nonetheless, our enthusiasm for getting to the polls and participating in those elections should not be diminished at all. Not only diminished, enhanced. Right. That uh, people understand that uh, that is where. Uh, we've always had support, and in the future, may need it. By the way, any shock um, to you that Donald Trump has attracted 19% of the Jewish vote in the United States? Or is that basically, you know, where at this stage in elections and campaigns where the Republican candidates normally are anyway? Well, they were lately, I mean, higher than that. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see November is the poll that counts, and yeah. people don't necessarily tell the pollsters what they do at the polls. We know that from the case of Israel. Right. Um, uh, so I think, you know, we'll have to see what, what will happen the, uh, in November, not now. A lot of interesting developments this week in the national campaign, huh? You can't make this stuff up, Malcolm, you know what I mean? You can't make it up, <laughs> it's, uh, but it adds to the uncertainty and to, the, um, to this uh, sense, I think, in the American public, which, which is not necessarily how healthy. I think it's good that people are vitally interested in the campaign. There are very strong views being expressed, uh, some views that are of concern uh, in in some of the public reactions. But um, it it emphasizes the importance of everybody being registered and everybody voting and turning out. And again, not to overlook the important congressional races. That first debate is in all seriousness now, and I know you'd love to see uh, you know, um, emphasis on foreign policy. I don't remember, you know, which debate is which in terms of what topics and areas they're going to be discussing. But that first debate is going to be must must watch must watch television for the entire country. I think it, as we get closer and closer, people are just more and more intrigued by this matchup. So I think it'll be Monday Night Football. I think <laughs> it's going to be the most watched show, and um, I hope it, it it is not treated as a, as a humorous program, but uh, with this. this seriousness that I think uh, it should warrant as we look at what, and especially in an era of, of such flux and of such concern, when we look at the issues that we're confronting now, that we see the developments in Syria, we see the developments in Iran, every day there are more and more challenges and issues that are going to not only affect the next president, but many presidents that require uh, a serious approach, a serious administration. You know, this week, uh, the Iranians now threaten uh, our aircraft in the Persian Gulf area, telling them to stay out of it, just as they told the, the head of the IRGC Navy, which is separate than the Iranian Navy, uh, but say they are in charge of the Straits of Hormuz and other, words, other areas uh, on the borders of Iran, uh, gave warning to the United States after their boats, played, their uh, fast ships uh, played havoc with our destroyers and the other ships that are we have in the carrier group, uh, aircraft carrier group, they're warning us to avoid 
uh, a confrontation that they should get out of the region. We should take our ships out. This is incredible, and it and, and it comes in part because of the failure to respond to to the to provocations that are happening on an ongoing basis. We saw when they fired one ship, uh, actually fired warning shots against uh, some of the Iranian uh, vessels, and and they got out of there. Mm-hmm. Well, they should have been doing this all along and in a much more serious way. And America has to give the message: we're not going to tolerate this. This is an international waters, international airspace, and uh, you know maybe they think because the election people are distracted or nobody will do anything serious. Well, they got to understand that there's going to be very serious consequences. The region is looking at this in with incredulity that you know our, our ships could be um, could be harassed in this way, and the you know we see the tension rising between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact. Iran is redirecting people during the Hajj, which began last Saturday, and you know so many people go to to uh, Saudi Arabia, but it's primarily Sunnis and the Shiites. They're directing to Karbala. I don't think they're letting Iranians go in back to to Saudi Arabia, um, and t- uh, claiming that the attacking the Saudis in in editorials you saw in the uh, Sarif in the in the New York Times, I think, and the you know talking about um, the the world of Wahhabism and how you have to get rid of it and uh, all, all sorts of uh, attacks against uh, each other. And this escalation to me is of concern and, and any sense that the West and the United States will not be there and will not be taking the necessary steps to to assure the security of our allies and the and uh, in the region and our accessibility yeah. to these vital areas. I thought of that when I saw the threat from Iran to Saudi Arabia. That Saudi Arabia is sitting there not knowing if they could ever depend on the U.S. or not. Just have they have no idea at this point. Well, that's what they say, and right. and, and this is uh, you know of concern. And when Iran threatens to shoot down U.S. planes in the Persian Gulf, and then they don't see uh, the kind of response that they anticipate. Uh, or, or would always have expected that the U.S. you know has to make it very clear, and we also have the same situation regarding the ceasefire in Syria, where all these secret documents and people don't have a sense that they really know uh, what's happening. I saw uh, Commander Jeremy Vaughn, who wrote this as a visiting fellow at the Washington Institute, wrote a, a, a very interesting piece where, where number one he showed that. Um, that they harassed American ships more than naval vessels more than 30 times, which is most, uh, 50% more than the same period last year. And the, they come at a distance that could make it uh, a collision likely or, or render U.S. defenses uh, nearly uh, defenseless against uh, if it's, uh, one of these boats are packed with explosives. And, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, well, the U.S. will have to absorb the first round, there's no such rules. We've got to send a message to a regime like Iran. And the more they get away with things, the more that they will exploit it. And, and we are seeing that, that elevated role in, um, in Syria. And there, ISIS, by the way, is being diminished. They're losing territory. Their recruitment is down from a high of 2,000, but lately about 1,000 a month, 500 to 1,000. They're down to less than 50 crossing the borders. But they're sending them back 
to carry out attacks at home. We'll get to Syria in a second. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Malcolm Holmline is with us. A weekly update happening here on a JM in the AM Friday. Um, in addition to that, uh, regarding ISIS and its presence, or now smaller presence in Syria, uh, Russia and the U.S. agreed uh, at the end of last week on a new plan to reduce violence in the Syrian conflict that, if successful, could lead for the first time to joint military targeting by the two powers against Islamic jihadists in Syria. So first of all, it, it, now that it's a week later almost, is, is there really a ceasefire? Is there really some type of truce that's being held in Syria? In parts of Syria, there are accusations uh, and recriminations against both sides about uh, um, who's honoring it, who's not honoring uh, the deals. But the um, uh, the question is, is the deal a good deal? And we don't know what's in some of the secret uh, accords, what, what rights it allocates uh, the Russians. But we see that the Russians are still playing this, this a very vital role there, an important role in, in the in this, and I think their place has been enshrined by uh, the understandings that have been uh, been reached. But and there are a lot of questions that remain uh, unanswered. You know, Turkey is laying electric wires across the Syrian border to build a buffer zone. Uh, the Syrian Kurdish groups are moving ahead for towards a semi-autonomous uh, region. Um, and the uh, the U.S. Uh, has put a lot of pressure on the rebel groups not to make advances near Aleppo, but we see that others are, and that, um, the, and that has aided the Syrian government's strategy of squeezing the rebels out of the suburbs. So some people say they're taking them, they're not taking back. Uh, who has made advances uh, and who hasn't? So the, the agreement has, has only temporarily allowed the, the uh, resupply in some areas, but according to reports that uh, we've seen, uh, I'm sure everybody has seen in the press, there are more questions than answers. Uh, so uh, you'd prefer if the U.S. would not have entered an agreement like this with the, so- with, with the Soviet Union, with Russia, or, we, like you said earlier, we just don't know enough about what's in it to make a determination like that? We don't know about the, what, and we don't know how this will, will play out. Does, what happens with uh, Assad? Does he stay? Does he go? U.S. still insists that, that he has to go. Does this deal does not provide for that? It doesn't really... It's it um, It's a ceasefire agreement. It's not right. anything that carries with it the next stage of a, of a political process. It's not in the agreement. Yeah. Um, the, um, well, we, we've emphasized over the last few weeks the age and the uh, complacency, one might say, of Mahmoud Abbas, 81 years old, head of the PA, and uh, the longer he takes to call for elections, because he's now, as you always point out, what, in year 13 of his four-year term, whatever it was, something like that? 11. Uh, year 11. Uh, the longer he takes, the more of an opportunity for Hamas to move in and take over the leadership of the PA, or one is not necessarily tied to the other? Well, it is tied in terms of people's frustrations and the willingness to look at uh, other places, and especially as he uh, refuses to accommodate some of the pressures, let's say, regarding Dachlan, uh, I'm not sure he's uh, such a better alternative, but uh, is seen by many as a uh, viable um, successor. Yeah, he's the superstar. Now. 
Right. He has his own checkered past, they're very checkered, and um, was kicked out for corruption and other things, but uh, was backed and, and spent the years in Qatar, but, and is backed by some of the Gulf states. Uh, there are other candidates as well, uh, but as we had anticipated all along, the election is put off. Uh, there was a lot of pressure, some say because they thought Hamas might win in major cities, others say because the competing uh, lists and that they couldn't get their act together, and it was really internal Fatah fighting. Uh, so these municipal elections uh, are not going to take place. But there, there was no great excitement amongst the Palestinians because they didn't see any change. And now the stories are coming out about something we have talked about, the corruption, that the, his sons and he are worth some $300 million, and yeah. how they, you know, uh, uh, he, he only wants a leader that's going to enshrine the sons' uh, kleptocracy uh, and their kleptocracy uh, overall. So Abbas, is he's old, he's tired, and all the excuses, but he's also very shrewd, and he is, is looking to protect his interests, certainly not the interests of the Palestinian people. Following in the footsteps of his predecessors. Very much. Unbelievable, he, he yeah. He stood by his side, for, for Arafat's side, for 40 years, and a lot rubbed off. Oh, that's true. I didn't even, I forgot about that. They had a real association. Uh, more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, the, w- one of our listeners pointed out that we had never mentioned, let me just pull up the article for a second, um, yeah, it goes back to just over uh, uh, two weeks ago. Federal appeals court in New York threw out a $655.5 million verdict rendered last year that it held the PA and the PLO liable for their roles in supporting terror attacks in Israel that claimed American lives. You and I have discussed many times, a la the BDS legislature um, uh, uh, votes and things like that, that many times this is more symbolic than practical. But we have seen, right, there have been cases where actual Funds? Am I correct that actual funds have been sure have been transferred? Right, there have been some funds, but again, this decision uh, was based on procedural issues. It wasn't on the substance and the legitimacy of the claims and the guilt. It was based upon uh, right whether it belonged whether it belonged in federal district court of Manhattan jurisdi- right? jurisdiction. Um, when you talk about symbolic moves, we saw it at the city council this week with right. the in New York with uh, after a very heated uh, session last week. Um, they they did have a vote and it was forty with four abstentions, uh, four against and six abstentions. And people should look where their city council member was on this issue because uh, some of them represent heavily Jewish areas. I'm just and so did not vote for it. Uh, again, overwhelmingly it was supported. Right, but the the ten who did not uh, should be held to account for their votes and to 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 explain their votes and. Those who who say, well, therefore, civil, you know, and yeah. nonviolent civil uh, uh, disobedience is right. legitimate. That's not what this is about. This mm-hmm. is about the destruction of the state of Israel. It's nothing to do with uh, nonviolent because on many campuses it is violent. Their reaction and the BDS people, even in the city council chamber, became violent right. and had to be ejected twice right. by the by the police. And and, and some so and it's some it's not legislation and it's not doesn't carry you know, real-world weight, but it is symbolic, and the Speaker supported it and others, and uh, this is, again, a case where people have to get off their duffs and find out where their councilman was on this, and then uh, the council member and, and challenge them. And some council members actually cited the, uh, it being a free speech issue. I'm sure you can make the case that this is not a free speech issue as well. Free speech is not free speech, Correct. and this is not about free speech. This is a, a statement about, and again, a non-binding resolution not legislation, 
that uh, it doesn't say that you don't have a right to criticize Israel. It talks about not about a boycott of Israel, not supporting that. Right. And doing so in a very active manner. And now for Malcolm Holmline's two favorite words, United Nations. It all begins tomorrow. People start arriving from around the world. Uh, you, are, you have always, uh, this time of year, told us what you anticipate in terms of the U.N. gathering and from the General Assembly, etc., uh, this time around. Uh, will this be one of those exciting sessions, uh, lots to watch or not? Uh, well, the circus has begun already with the arrival of some, and I warn everybody about the traffic next week in Manhattan. As bad as it is now, every day there, it's going to be even worse. Right. And uh, we'll have to see how many heads of state actually show up. We have many meetings with uh, foreign leaders who are coming, foreign ministers and presidents. Uh, uh, over the week, Bibi uh, Netanyahu will arrive in on uh, Wednesday and speak Thursday. And um, we'll stay then over Shabbos here in New York. You don't know what time he speaks Thursday at, do you? It's going to be about midday sometime. Okay. Uh, so I don't believe that you're going to have the resolution, the Security Council resolution against Israel, some of the things that people had speculated. I do think the French will try to have a ministerial level meeting or uh, some working group. I think the P5 plus one. We'll meet with Rouhani, the permanent five members in one who negotiated the deal. We'll meet with Rouhani, who is coming here. Uh, I think there will be things of interest that we should watch. You have to watch the, the mood there. We also have the, the election of the Secretary General, which will not take place now, but will take place in October. Uh, but there's still a lot of... Oh, and uh, I think it was the New York Times that reported that the, it, it, it now looks like the next Secretary General will not be a woman, right? That all the women have now been eliminated from the process? No, 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 that, not, not so. That's not true? No, no. The, the original thing was mandating that it be a woman and an East European. Right now, the, the, the top two runners were not the third. I think the first woman was in third or fourth place. And she seems to be being eliminated, but maybe replaced by somebody else who could be a compromised candidate. Mm. So the women have been eliminated. It's, it, but it's a shifting thing because it, it, it doesn't work the way people think. Just because somebody has 11 votes out of the 15 or 12 or 13, if there's somebody who objects, if it's one of the permanent five, that knocks it out. Mm. So it's a question of who is the opposition to a particular candidate and what will happen in the final vote. So this is th the process is only to try to eliminate, to get people to drop out when they're very low in, in getting uh, votes. And by the way, on the terms of legislation, Dan Coates this week introduced legislation, Senator Coates, um, something he said he worked for 18 years on that Congress has worked on, about the, the money that is being paid to terrorists by the PA and to knock out aid to the PA until they stop this practice of, of subsidizing and encouraging, and in fact, paying for terrorism against uh, Israelis, uh, Jews and non-Jews who have been killed in Israel, where they get um, uh, huge sums of money. Uh, this year, I think it takes about $300 million out of the budget altogether, both payments for those who are in jail and payments to those who are not. And, and uh, if somebody gets killed, the families get the money. Uh, it's really an outrageous practice. It's been tolerated for much too long, and people have really taken it on. Senator Gerber, others who have uh, really uh, pushed this issue, and Senator Coates and other legislators are, are uh, very hot on this right now. And again, it's something that we should encourage. It, it, it's just simply such an outrage that taxpayers' dollars, we gave them about $5 billion since 98, that from that money was money being paid, including killing Americans like you know, Taylor Force recently, 
yeah. but many others yeah. uh, through the the attacks that that uh, you know are encouraged and and honored and celebrated by the Palestinian Authority. By the way, we should mention as UN Week will begin that the Golden family are they're going to be at the United Nations this week. Yes, uh, they will, will be there. By the way, there's going to be an interesting event also, and and this is an important reminder they're being there to remind people about Hadar Golden and. Uh, the other uh, MIA who is not have not been returned, whose bodies have not been returned. Uh, there's also going to be a, a, an exhibition right after Netanyahu's speech uh, of uh, on Israeli technology in Africa, huh. and, uh, and and Netanyahu will meet with the African ambassadors. Uh, I understand, and it will be a, a sort of uh, celebration of of Israeli technology that is particularly applicable in in Africa, and they had many more companies and people wanted to display and, and had appropriate stuff to, to put out than uh, they could accommodate. Um, there will still be some African countries who will remain hostile to Israel, correct? Or are they winning them over? Well, we're, it, it is, uh, it's a positive direction, but it doesn't move that quickly. Uh, they, will still, they seem to vote automatically. Uh, I don't know, their hand just goes up in response to any resolution uh, against Israel. But there is a change. There's no doubt that Israel is being received by more and more countries, and more of them want to have access to Israel. I know I, I hear from them, and they ask me to help them get into to Israel. So hopefully over time we will see that translated into a different voting patterns uh, there as well. What did B.B. tell you about his trip there? He was very enthusiastic about it? He was very enthusiastic about the way it was received. There were many more countries do. You know, he had contact, I think, with eight countries, the leaders of eight countries, um, and many more wanted to be in. And there are uh, efforts to reach out to, to countries that don't have diplomatic relations uh, right now with Israel, but want to begin to develop the ties. And it's a process, you know, after many years of estrangement. Right. But they all say Israel has everything we need, whether it's the water, um, uh, fighting desalination, post harvest reclamation. All of these things that Israel has developed are just exactly what Africa needs. <laughs> and all the promises they had about the pot of gold at the end of the oily rainbow they saw came to nothing. And their big fear today is Iran, because Iran is, is undermining the regimes and they're infiltrating. It used to be China that, that they used to raise. Now they talk about Iran. Are you viewing with any skepticism China's uh, new attempt to negotiate and trade with uh, countries in the Middle East that they haven't in the past? Well, certainly trading a lot more with Israel and, and buying companies and getting technology and their delegations every week, and they are adding tens of thousands of seats on their flights next year for to China, uh, from China to Israel. Um, so, uh, but China is driven by first a desire for energy. They're hungry for energy. They want to buy as many sources of energy. They're looking to expand their economy. They're investing in Iran. They're, they're not Sadiqim in any re respect. They're just pursuing their own interests. Uh, you know, they don't get involved in, in many of the international situations. Uh, they are very focused, obviously, on, on the China Sea, and there's been provocative actions taken there, too, vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., and um, you know, we'll have to see what, what uh, develops there. But China pursues its interests. Yeah, that's for sure. Hey, you heard about this uh, Roman gold coin that was found near Hartzion in an archaeological dig? I did not hear about the Roman gold coin, but I did hear. And again, it just is 
it should be flipping people out. You know, <laughs> that they found a 1,500-year-old synagogue in the Lower Galilee, and it, they found a, a um, mosaic on the floor mm. that seems to depict a visit of Alexander the Great. Oh, my gosh. And it's very detailed. You ha- people have to go and look at this. It's amazing. And, of course, last week we touched on the this incredible archaeological discussion discoveries at the and the, the, the tenacity that they demonstrated in putting together the tiles that were destroyed but were in the courtyard of the second base on Mikdash. They have now resurrected with very intricate geometric designs. How people don't flip out about this, that they can go to Israel now and you can see the actual thing because the Palestinians tried to destroy it we were able to get access to stuff that we haven't seen before, ever, and uh, well, certainly in the last 2,000 years. And it, it, it's really remarkable, and I hope that people, especially as we come up to Rosh Hashanah, and I hope many people will join us at Woodcliffe Lake this year for Rosh Hashanah, and we'll be discussing this. Where? Wood, Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey? Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey, wow. with Rabbi Fuchs and the, wow, boy. his amazing crew. So... Uh, I hope uh, people, it's a great, uh, Yantavi does a great job, and, and uh, I hope people and rabbis will talk about this. I mean, you want to inspire people. What can do it more? You can actually look and hold it and see it, and, and, and it does, the designs reflect what was described in the mission and other places about uh, what it looked like and how beautiful it was. And they, were, they took, you know, these things were all broken up, were smashed up, and they were able to take these pieces and you have to think about how much work it took to then put them together and in the right designs in order to, in order to come up with these two squares or more. I don't know how many uh, ultimately they will have. But to me, it just... The uh, whole thing is remarkable. It's unbelievable. All right, we'll reconvene next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and uh, thanks Shabbos. so much for joining us. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update Fridays here at JM. In the AM.